standing with me out of respect for the word and turn to First Corinthians thirteen. First Corinthians thirteen, and we're going to be reading verses four through seven this morning. Here is the infallible, inspired, inerrant word of God. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous, love does not brag, and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with truth, it bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes all things, and love endures all things. Let's ask God to help us. We have prayed what we need to this morning, Heavenly Father, by the guidance of your Holy Spirit. In justice, quicken us. We can ask for nothing better this morning that you would truly quicken our hearts to receive this truth this morning with faith and love in our hearts. And that as we see true love exemplified in Jesus Christ, His cross, that that would make a change in our lives. And that you truly would quicken us by this gospel proclamation and that you would sanctify us with this truth and reshape us so that we may live as Jesus did by the power of your grace. Hear us for his sake. Amen? You may be seated. We're just going to take a moment here this morning to uh, reset up the context here so we're very clear what the Apostle is aiming at and why he is aiming at it. Before we begin the positive exposition of uh, Paul's proclamation of love, we should step back and look, first of all, at chapter 12, verse 31, because that's probably the most important place we can look to to sort of put together the context of why Paul even talks about love in the first place. Very easy to see here. The Apostle says, the very beginning of 31, earnestly desire the greater gifts earnestly desire the greater gifts. Now, he says that uh, just after he has spent all of chapter 12 dealing uh, with various spiritual gifts. Now, you look with me at chapter 14, verse 1. Uh, You see here that the apostle says, Pursue love, yet desire earnestly the spiritual gifts. You can see here that the apostle could almost have just completely left chapter 13 out and transitioned seamlessly from verse 31 of chapter 12 into chapter 14. Uh, But he didn't do that because there was a problem. And the problem is indicated here as you look to the end of verse 1 in chapter 14 where he says, but especially that you may prophesy. You see, he immediately follows up the command to seek uh, the greater spiritual gifts with this command to prophesy. And the reason why he commands that is because now what he says in verse 2, For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. However, he says in verse 3, But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and consolation. Now, we have to come back to this surely when we come to chapter 14 and expound it in larger detail. But the essence of it is this. The first key to understanding the context of 1 Corinthians 13 is that there are a whole series of people within the Corinthian church who seem to have a great appreciation, rather an over-exaltation or over-emphasis upon uh, the gift of speaking in tongues. Uh, We know that because within the context of chapters 12 through 14, the Apostle references tongues over 19 times more than any of the other spiritual gifts. We also know that tongues were a problem in the church of Corinth. 
You can look at that for yourself in chapter 14, verse 23, where it appears, and we've already mentioned this before, that when they would gather together for worship, you would have numerous people within the congregation begin to spout off with the speaking of tongues to the point that what resulted was a cacophony of noises and just complete chaos. What we take from that is this. It's embedded for us here in verses 2 and 3 in chapter 14. He says, the problem with tongues is this. When people speak in tongues, other people don't understand. You see that? Now contrast that with what you find in verse 3. He says, but one who prophesies speaks to men for edification. Now you can see with the contrast of these two gifts what the problem is. You have all of these people in Corinth who are privileging and overemphasizing the use of tongues. And it's to the detriment of the entire church. Because the apostle says, when you people start spouting off with your tongues, no one understands you. And because no one understands you, it doesn't benefit anybody. Now I hope you get that. That is the reason why this chapter on love is in 1 Corinthians 13. Or rather in the 1 Corinthians, this epistle to the church of Corinth. The reason why is because you have a bunch of people in the Corinthian church who would prefer to, uh, who rather love to dazzle people with their gifts than love people. They love to dazzle people. They don't love to love people. That's the problem. And the result of them pursuing the dazzling, uh, supernatural gifts that call attention to themselves is the body of Christ is suffering. Uh, You have people who are a part of the church who think that their spiritual life is going down the tubes because they're not speaking in tongues. Uh, They're not out uh, moving mountains with faith. Uh, They're not performing spectacular miracles. And they think they're second-class Christians. And then you have these people here who are brimming with arrogance and pride because they're speaking in all of these tongues, yet nobody understands what's going on. And so Paul says, and this is important, right after he says, Earnestly desire the greater gifts, and we already know what that is, and you go into chapter 14, that's the gift of prophecy and the interpretation of prophecy. But he says here, right after he says that, I show you a more excellent way. That's it. He says, I show you a more excellent way, and of course, the more excellent way than pursuing the dazzling spiritual gifts which do nothing but basically call attention to the person who is using them, build their sense of self up while they at the same time tear down other Christians. The apostle says, let me show you a better way. That way is love. And he begins to unfold it, of course. We've seen that already in verses 1 through 3, where he shows you, you can have all the dazzling, spectacular, supernatural gifts in your arsenal that you want, but if you don't have love, it's all a big waste of time. That's it. That's all verses 1 through 3 is saying. You can have all the gifts you want, But if you don't have love, it's a big waste of time. Well, 4 through 7 teach us then why love is so superior. Last week we saw the negative aspects of love. They were obvious. There's eight of them there. In fact, it's interesting that Paul would have to go uh, out of his way to emphasize the negative aspect of love before, uh, so that we can appreciate the positive side. There's more attention to the negative than there is to the positive. 
but sometimes negative communication gets through us more clearly. We pay more attention to it, and uh, we process it with greater depth, and we say, oh, that's what's wrong with what I'm doing or believing. So Paul spends, uh, uh, out of this section, uh, he references eight negatives of love. Today, we deal with seven positive applications of love. And these are all action verbs. I remind you of that. They are all action verbs. Again, which uh, points to the fact that what Paul is not doing is writing a Hallmark card. What he's doing is he's getting us to think about how love works. This is not about us just sitting around contemplating love. This is about getting the church to do love, to show love, to practice love in practical terms. Now we said all that. Let's dig into our passage. We have all the context we need. We understand what's going on in the passage. And we deal, first of all, with the problem of patience. Okay? And uh, I forgot to include this here, but stuff we already know from last week, that everything that Paul says about love here is about uh, working out love in relationships. And, of course, patience is critical to that, right? Patience is critical to working out love in relationships. Because the word literally means to, uh, to demonstrate patience under uh, situations of difficulty to demonstrate patience under situations of difficulty. And when this word is used in almost every place in the New Testament, the difficulty is not circumstances, but people. It's people. So basically what you could say here, uh, when you see this this first statement, love is patient in verse 4, uh, you could literally translate that in a loose way. Love is patient with difficult Uh, obstinate people. Now, notice that's the exact opposite of what uh, Paul said don't do. Remember, he said, um, love is not easily irritated. This is the opposite of that. He said, this is what I don't want you to do, is running around uh, fuming mad, getting all upset all the time, and irritated everybody. Uh, Just get over it. People are going to bug you. People are. They're just going to rub you the wrong way, and that's not an excuse for you to fly off the handle. He says, this is what love is. Love is patient. Now, I want us to illustrate this, and we're going to have to turn to another passage. So, good thing if your Bible's open, which I already know you do, because that's why we're here at church, is to learn from God and His Word. 1 Thessalonians 1, or rather 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5. We see a great example here of how... um, A patient love is to work its way out in the church. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, here the Apostle says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. Now you'll notice there that that's the word we're tracking down. Same word that we have back here in Corinthians 13, patient. We're going to work our way to it. Because it sort of builds. The passage builds towards this... uh, This big idea of patience. And what's so interesting here about this passage is that Paul is brutally honest about the kind of people you go to church with. Because here he's talking about not their families, but their church. And he says, here's the kind of people you're going to have in church. Unruly people. Uh, You're going to have faint-hearted people. And you're going to have weak people. Sounds just uh, like a bunch of sinners. And we shouldn't be surprised at that. Because that's who Jesus died for, is sinful people. 
And so Jesus says, you're going to have people in your church who are unruly. And the word uh, can literally mean undisciplined, uh, but it probably means also alongside of that lazy. Disciplined and lazy people. And of course, the laziness flows out of the lack of self-discipline. And the Apostle Paul says, uh, with, those, with respect to those people, uh, you're going to have to admonish them. Uh, you're going to have to come alongside them and, and, uh, and tell them they need to get together. But then he says, uh, you're also going to have faint-hearted people in the church. You're going to have faint-hearted people in the church. That is, people who become discouraged and despondent uh, very easily. They face some hard times in their life. They, they have some difficulties in their relationships. Uh, maybe their job's not going very well. Uh, whatever the case may be, and they become despondent. They, they experience this in a very deep and personal way, and they, they become despondent when faced with life's frustrations. And the Apostle Paul says, to those people, you're going to have to go comfort them. You're just going to have, you know, you're not going to be able to, to do a lot of different things. You're just going to have to sit down with them and comfort them and tell them everything's going to be okay. We're going to pray for you. Uh, the church is going to be here with you through this. And Jesus cares about you and he loves you. And it's all going to work out okay. So you're going to have, you're going to have uh, faint-hearted people and they have to be comforted. And then he says you're also going to have weak people. You're going to have weak people. And that's people who are physically, emotionally, and psychologically weak, and they're often distressed about life. Really cheerful stuff here. Uh, and, and Paul says you're going to have to help them. You're going to have to help supply their needs because of their weakness. Now, what's fascinating here is that the Apostle Paul doesn't give us a new category. He says be patient with everyone. And as you read the verse sort of pile up the terms, it seems to be headed towards a climax. And basically what the Apostle Paul is saying, it doesn't matter what kind of people you go to church with. Here's what you're supposed to be as a Christian towards other Christians. Uh, you're, supposed to be, you're supposed to be patient. Instead of becoming easily irritated and exasperated with everybody all the time, he says, here's what you're going to have to do. is You're just going to have to take a deep breath and you're going to have to learn to, qual- uh, to cultivate the quality of patience. Bearing up despite difficulty. And you say this morning, well, how do we do that? Because uh, we can't ignore the fact that people sometimes just are very difficult. How do we do that? How do we become patient kind of people towards the unruly, towards the faint-hearted, towards the weak, and towards the people that easily irritate, and so forth? Well, we learn from the example of Jesus. Turn with me over to Matthew 18. Now, we're going to spend a little bit more time on the first couple of these. Because uh, we want to connect them right into the gospel, right into Jesus, so that... uh, uh, we see in real practical terms what, what it all means, and then we can work more quickly through some of the others. The Matthew 18, verse 21, and Peter is coming to Jesus, and he is he's wanting to make himself look good. And so he says to Jesus, hey, how many times do I have to forgive somebody who offends me? And he said, and, I, I want, and he really is trying to look, up, look good here. He says, uh, should, I, should, I, should I give him up to, forgive him up to seven times? Well, seven times was more than twice as much than uh, the rabbis said you had to forgive somebody. They said you, could, you just had to forgive somebody up to three times for the same offense. 
But Peter, you know, he wants to go the extra mile here, and he says, you know what? what if, if I do it seven times, did I do what you wanted me to do? And, and Jesus immediately says, and you know this verse very well, uh, he says, verse 22, I do not say to you up to seven times, but to 70 times seven, or 490 times. I'm not very good at math, but I did draw that out with uh, stick figures and pieces of paper and stuff like that. And it did work out to 490. Uh, at any rate, Jesus is not saying, you know, keep a very careful checklist here. Because, you know, when you get down to 481, 482, 483, you're getting real close to what I'm talking about. No, it's obvious, Jesus is saying, it's unlimited. Now, why is it unlimited? And here's the thing that you have to think about, and this is going to tie in directly to patience. Jesus says, I'll tell you what, here's what I mean, I'm going to tell you a story. As Jesus often did, he told stories to help people understand what it is he was trying to get across. And he said, there once was uh, this very wealthy landowner who owned a bunch of slaves, and uh, he came to them one day to settle the accounts. And there was one of his slaves who owed him $10,000. Well, uh, you know, Jesus uh, says that this landowner demanded that the slave pay him uh, the 10,000 talents, which could be 10,000, but you plug in whatever you want. It's a lot of money. That's all that's being said here. It's a lot of money. And... uh, the slave says, I, I don't have the money, please. You know, and he finally threw himself on the ground and he begged for mercy. And the slave owner said, okay, I, I, won't, I won't sell your family off into slavery and to get my money back. He just cleared the debt. And so then this slave, who had been forgiven of all of this enormous amount of money uh, in terms of debt, went to one of his fellow slaves and grabbed him by the neck and made him pay back a couple of nickels worth of debt. And, and the guy said, I, I don't have a roll of quarters on me right now. I can't pay this. And uh, the slave demanded everything of him in that moment. Well, the landowner found out. The landowner found out. And, uh, of course, he demanded everything from that former slave he forgave and and exacted thorough and complete justice. All I want us to see, that's just the story, but look at verse 26 of your passage here. Uh, The slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself, saying, Have patience. Have patience. What is patience? Well, it's very obvious what patience is here for. Jesus explained, this is what forgiveness looks like. He forgave everything. That's what patience was. Uh, This slave owed him an enormous sum of money, and the landowner showed him patience by forgiving the debt, by completely clearing the entire debt so he didn't have to pay it back. Now, this is what we're getting at here when Jesus says you need to forgive your brother 70 times 7. You need to be patient. What's your option if you don't forgive somebody? What's your option? Throw them in jail? Beat them up? Take their money? 
Break your relationship off? I mean, you don't have a lot of options. You're just going to have to learn to forget about it. You're going to have to show people patience. They're going to bother you. They're going to do the wrong things to you. And what you're going to have to do is stop sitting around uh, wondering how many times you let them slide before you go after and you get yours back. But I want us to see here this morning that patience for us, in terms of how it works out in our relationships and how it, terms of how it works out in the church, is that we are called to manifest the grace of God to us in terms of how we treat other people. And that means we're going to have to be forgiving people. That's all there is to it. The key to us to being patient people is to be forgiving people. And the way we become forgiving people is by keep going back to the cross of Jesus Christ and realizing that we're that slave there who owed God this enormous sum of money and He cleared all of the debts. This is how we learn how to be patient with other people. We look at what God has done to us. He has not demanded... A full compensation for all of our grievances against Him. If He did, we would be spending eternity in hell. And so, what Jesus is arguing here to Peter is to stop patting your back. Uh, We're tired of you getting broken arms trying to pat yourself on the back. Just realize uh, that, that you're going to have to learn to be really patient with people because I'm dying for you. And that means that because I own you, because I laid down my life for you, because I showed you ultimate patience and you want to be my disciple you're going to have to be patient and so what does that mean for you this morning in terms of dealing with unruly people faint-hearted people weak people irritating people uh, stubborn people obstinate people angry people unloving people what does it mean it means that uh, we're going to have to keep running back to the cross Because that's the only way you're going to learn how to be a patient person. The only way you're ever going to learn to be a patient person, by the way, this is a work in progress. This This takes repeated running back to the cross. Because it's so contrary to our nature. It is so thoroughly contrary to our nature. Because we want to exact repayment. And what we're going to have to do if we're going to learn to live with each other in love, is to keep running back to the cross and keep seeing the patience of God. And I know that you're not going to want to do that. I don't want to do that. It'd be just a lot better to get uh, in one uh, storm of exasperation to, to vent your feelings and your frustrations and wipe your hands of the deal and go on. But you know, we're not given that option. We're just not given that option here. Paul says love is patient, and if you're a Christian, you're supposed to be loving, and that means you're supposed to be patient. And so, I knew it was going to be really hard, so I spent a bunch of extra time going to show you the gospel so that you'd say yes. See, our, our, our love is always going to be rooted in the cross of Jesus Christ. If it's not, you are going to eventually become an exasperated, emotionless person because you are going to be drained of every emotional and psychological resource you have to try to fulfill uh, these commands to love because there aren't the resources in us. There just is not. And so we need to run to Jesus and to his cross over and over again. The second thing here is the other side of love. If, if, if in the first example in verse 4, 
you have sort of the passive side of love. In the second one, when it comes to love is kind, you have the active side of love. You have the active side of love. It's to provide something that's beneficial for someone else. It's to provide something that's beneficial uh, for someone else. And a great illustration of this is found in Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. You should see this for yourself also. I promise I won't keep turning to as many passages later on. There'll be a couple more, but it won't as many as this right now. But you need to see this. This is uh, sort of uh, Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, although it's not really on a mountain, which means that Jesus probably gave uh, this same address or something similar to it multiple times throughout his ministry. This just happens to be recorded in Luke in a different location. A little bit different things here. But you might even hear echoes of our law reading from Matthew chapter 5 this morning here as well. But it's found in verse 35 where Jesus says, Love your enemies and do good. And lend, expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Now what I want you to see there is that word kind. It's the very same word that we have over in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 4. Now, it's critical that we understand this because Jesus is telling us this is what kind means. So, you have to look back over the rest of the verse and begin to understand what kindness means to God. And here's what it looks like. He says, love your enemies. Alright. It already started out hard. Kindness is already more difficult than you and I can do. Love your enemies. And here the word enemies means those who stand in hostile opposition to you. It is used all over the New Testament to refer to real hostility between two parties. Used, of, uh, used to translate Psalm 2, uh, where it describes uh, uh, God's enemies. Used to uh, talk about the enemies of Jesus Christ that he's going to crush uh, with his second coming. Uh, used to talk about us, actually, in Colossians chapter 1, where it says that while we were enemies, you see... Uh, God reconciled us, having made peace with the blood of His cross. You know, it's people who are in real opposition to you. We, we, we saw this again in our law reading this morning. He said that you're to bless those who persecute you and do not curse. To not take vengeance out on people. And this is the love your enemies thing. And this is the really, really, really hard thing here. One of the really hard things that we find in all of the New Testament to live like a Christian. He says, love people who don't like you. Not even just love people that don't like you, but love people who are mean to you, who oppose you. So he says, love them, and then he says, and do good. He says, and do good. It's probably to be taken together with the next word, and lend. So, two, probably the two hardest things that we are confronted with. Number one, Love people who are enemies, and number two, give up some of our money, because nobody wants to do that. But it's interesting here how he talks about giving up your money. Jesus says, lend, now the next phrase there is expecting nothing in return. Uh, If you have a little number next to that, you can look over into uh, the column note, and it says, or, not despairing at all. I think that's uh, that's the better word in the early manuscripts. What Jesus is saying here is when you lend to somebody, don't sit there wringing your hands, wondering about uh, when you're going to get your money back. He's saying the primary thing that you have to take into consideration uh, when you lend your money is not about 
when are you going to get it back? And are you going to get a good return on your investment? But it's more about helping. You see, that's what Jesus is saying. You need to be more concerned, not about your money, but about the person. Be more concerned about the person. Don't worry about returns and investments. Now, what makes this verse uh, so powerful, we already said it's illustrating to us what kindness is in action, but what really makes this verse uh, pop are two things. Number one, what Jesus said just before it. So if you go back to verse 30 and 31, he says, Give to everyone who asks of you, whoever takes away what is yours, don't demand it back. Treat others the way you want them to treat you. But now we're going to start getting into the punchline of this. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who don't love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But, hope you caught that. Begin verse 35. What Jesus is doing is he's contrasting. He's contrasting what he's about to say in verse 35 with what he just said in verses 32 through 34. He's saying it's no big deal if you sit around loving those who love you. It's no big deal if you sit around doing good to those who do good to you. It's no big deal if you sit around giving or lending to those who lend. He said even sinners do that. This is where it becomes difficult to be a Christian. Even sinners do all this good stuff to each other a lot of times. You you can find this happening. You can find all kinds of examples of it. But Jesus says, this is what you're going to do. Is you're going to do all of those things except to the people who are your enemies. Now that's amazing. You say, how in the world are we going to do that? Why in the world are we going to do that? Well, that leads us to the second part of this verse that's so important. The first part is that first word, but, and the next part of this verse that's so important is after he's given you these instructions about how you love your enemies and do good and lend, expect that nothing in return or don't despair over it or whatever, he says, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Why is it that Christian ethics has a completely different standard than the way the world does things. You know, the way the world does things makes perfect sense. It was illustrated so well uh, in in one of these uh, episodes of Winnie the Pooh that we used to watch with the kids. If somebody does something nice for you, you do something nice for them. Everybody knows that. If somebody does something good for you, well, it's only obvious. You should do something good back for them. But what Jesus says, that's not the way it is with Christianity because that's not the way it is with God. In order for the gospel to be illustrated in this world, you're going to have to do something good for somebody who doesn't like you. He says, God himself is ungrateful to evil men. 
He's the one that's causing the sun to, to rise and to set and to send uh, the rains upon the land. He's the one that's always caring from everything from the insects to the fish of the sea to, to everyone in this, in this world. And that's what he's saying here. Is he's saying what God has been doing for as long as there are people, since long as creation, is that God has been doing good things to ungrateful and evil men. And the only way that we are going to be able to manifest what the gospel is all about is when we do things to people who don't deserve them. And not only that, to people who are opposite, who are enemies of us. He says if you do that, then you will show that you're what? Son you will show what a redeemed life looks like. When you do good to those who don't do good to you, when you lend to those who don't lend to you, when you love enemies, you are showing what it looks like to be a Christian. You see, Christian love is not egoistic, it's altruistic. Egoistic, it's not self-involved, it's not about me, it's not the benefits that come to me. It's, it's purely for other people, altruistic. D.A. Carson commenting on this passage noted something that I thought was very useful. He said, you know, thinking about this whole concept of love, especially in the Greco-Roman context, he said that... Um, Love was not considered a virtue at all by the, Roman, by the Greeks and the Romans. It just wasn't. Uh, they preferred that you be apathetic towards people. The only virtue that was sort of similar was philanthropy. To give of your resources to others. But you know, philanthropy is not altruistic. Philanthropy always comes with a big plaque in the back saying, uh, you know, that so-and-so gave all of this money. What a wonderful person he is. What a true patriot and citizen of the city of Corinth. But love doesn't do that. Love gives. And love gives without recognition and without trying to call attention to itself. It does it without expecting anything in return. And it does it to people who are difficult. Historian... uh, Rodney Stark, in the book called The Rise of Christianity, attempts to explain and account for what historians still have not yet accounted for, which is why there is a Christian church today. Um, And what I mean by that is it's extremely improbable that there would be a Christian church that spread throughout the world. And the reason why is because Christianity started off with a band of 12 people. Just a very small band of people... And wherever they went to tell people about Jesus, what happened to them? They were persecuted. They were beaten down by the most powerful military force on earth. And the rest of the world was completely pagan. I had this tiny little group of people uh, that you couldn't even notice. They were so irrelevant and so odd. It's so improbable that they would have ever have overcome the world. And so what historians have wrestled with is how could it possibly be that this small group of people ends up conquering the pagan empire within just a few short centuries after Jesus Christ? Of a number of explanations that he gives, 
or hypotheses, one of them stands out because it illustrates this. Is that throughout the first couple of centuries after Jesus Christ, there were, there were numerous, very, very severe plagues in the cities, in the major cities, because of bad sanitation and other things. And what the Christians would do is go care for people as they were dying. They would just go take care of people. Even at the cost of their own life. So that they could show the pagan neighbors. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that's one example that has a lot of explanatory power. Is people being kind. Demonstrating real practical love to people who did not deserve it. Imagine if the church was more that way. They internalized what Jesus spoke of here to show that we're sons of the Most High by our kindness. They've internalized what the apostles spoke about in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is not only patient. Not just that he doesn't run around uh, getting irritated to people all the time, but love is kind. It's proactive. It goes and does things. It helps. We won't spend as much time, I promise, on the rest of them. But that really helps us get a handle, I think, on this distinctness, the distinct flavor of Christian love. It's not like what uh, other people understood or knew about. And it's, and it's, it's that way because it's rooted in the cross. There's nothing like that in all of human history. There's nothing like the cross of Jesus Christ anywhere. So the next thing he says, and you have to drop down to the end of verse 6. Like I said, these go faster. Um, Love rejoices with the truth. Just notice that it's set in contrast in verse 6 to love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Um, I I think the best way to take it is the way that uh, Linsky has taken it. And he says uh, that truth refers to conduct that rests in the saving reality of the gospel. Uh, In other words, what he is saying is that uh, when love is worked out in practical terms, just like we've talked about in terms of this patience and this kindness, uh, that's truth. That's, that's showing the truthfulness of the gospel because what happens when Jesus comes into people's lives, He changes them. They become less selfish and they become more selfless. And, and uh, what, what Paul is saying here is that when the truth of the gospel manifests its life in terms of practically helping others and being kind to others and patient with others and so forth and so on. Whenever love sees that, it rejoices. And the reason why love rejoices is because love knows that there's nothing else that could do this to somebody. There's nothing else that can make somebody selfless except for Christ. It's not possible. Because sinful people are inherently selfish. Even the ones who don't look like they're being selfish are being selfish. And so love rejoices in gospel truth. Love rejoices when it sees the gospel change people and make them different. It's exciting to see that. It's terribly exciting to see real change come into the life of people through Jesus what we also learn next in verse 7, just notice that before all of these terms here, all is uh, set before or after. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's, all, it, it's, all, it's 
to be dramatic for sure, but it, it's just to show the comprehensiveness that's involved. It bears all things. Uh, maybe one way to get at this word and what it means is to go back to the chapter 9 in 1 Corinthians here, where um, the Apostle Paul says, If others share the right over you, do we not more? He says, nevertheless, we do not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Now, the word um, endure there is the same word that you have here back in chapter 13, verse 7, bear. It puts up with. It, it deals with it, you see. It, it, it's, it's, it's dealing with a situation that's caused by someone else's lack of love. That's essentially what's, what's going on here. It's dealing with a situation which is caused by someone else's lack of love. Now, if you look at 1 Corinthians 9, you can see what the lack of love was. He says in verse 11, If we, show, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much that we, rete- we reap material things? In other words, what Paul is saying is that uh, we preach the gospel among you. Is it too much that you, that you pay us for it? And he's operating based on the principles of the law, which those teachers who were appointed by God to preach and teach in his church were to be compensated. Yet Paul, note, Paul makes a note here that he had the right to receive compensation in verse 12, but he did not take it. He did not exercise his right. He says, instead, we endured all things so that we would cause no hindrance to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Basically, what Paul is saying is, I didn't take a paycheck from you. I had every right to take a paycheck from you, but I didn't, I didn't demand one. And why he didn't demand one is probably because the Corinthians were being somewhat greedy and miserly towards him. They didn't want to pay him. There was something there in the way they were acting towards him that he could tell that it wasn't out of generosity, it wasn't out of love, it wasn't out of concern for him. And after all that he was doing was was ministering to them and being a blessing to them and they had no desire to pay him in return. He said, fine, I'll I'll just forego my rights. But you see... He, bear, he, he, that, he gives an example of what it means to bear up. He put up with a circumstance and a difficult one which was caused by someone else's lack of love. This is what you're being called to do here, people of God, to not insist upon your rights. He had every right in the world to be treated differently. But he wasn't. He wasn't. And the Corinthians had a hard time with this, by the way, because you remember if you go back to chapter 6, I believe it is, that they were completely impatient with each other. They, if they had a problem, one brother or sister against another, they were down at the court, filing lawsuits against each other. No, Paul says that, that's not how we do it. Back in chapter 6, he says brother doesn't go against brother. But here, he's saying you bear. You bear all things. You don't insist upon your rights. You don't assert your rights just because... You have a right to your right. You give them up. You know, people may not pay you the respect that you deserve. They may not provide you the encouragement you need. They may not show you the patience or compassion that they should. That happens all the time. That happens all the time. So what are you going to do? Go demand it? You're going to go demand the respect of others? You're going to go demand the encouragement of others? Paul says we bear all things. Love doesn't insist upon its rights, even though it has every reason in the world to receive it. And by the way, uh, 
it doesn't mean we become mopey either. Well, I'm going to put up with this, but I'm going to sure let everybody know I'm upset. You know, that, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying you do that with the big old... Uh, Winnie the Pooh references abound this morning, but the Eeyore thing. Oh, I guess I'll have to put up with it. I'm not really happy, though. Uh, no, you bear it. Love bears. It bears all things, he says. He goes on to say that love believes all things. Love believes all things. And, he, and I don't want... I, we have to clarify something here. Paul is not speaking about gospel truths here. He's not speaking about systematic theology. He's not speaking about some principle or doctrine of biblical revelation. That wouldn't be wrong. Loving people should believe in sound doctrine. But that's not what he's saying here. He's talking about relationships within the context. And so we have every reason to believe that when he says love believes all things, it's exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about the context of relationships. Love believes. Love is not suspicious. Love doesn't sit around being all suspicious of people. He's pointing out something that is basic to a solid, healthy relationship is that you have to have trust. If you don't have trust in the people that you're in relationship with, you are going to have nothing but a difficult relationship. A lack of trust always leads people uh, to be judgmental. A lack of trust leads people to take things the wrong way because they're defensive. A lack of trust leads people to always be reading something into everybody's actions. But uh, something bothers me more. Maybe I'm just giving all my pet peeves. That bugs me more than anything. People are always reading and like there's some subliminal message somewhere. Well, you know what? If you prove yourself to be a reasonable person but flawed and sinful, people should be able to account for that. Well, all right. They were having a bad day. You know? But it's so irritating. But Paul says, you know what? Love believes all things. Love doesn't sit around acting suspicious of everybody all the time. Luther has a great quote. He always has great quotes, but this is really good here. He's talking about what this means in practical terms. And he says, he says it's about excusing others, speaking well of others. And listen to this. Always putting the best construction on everything. Imagine if you applied that in your relationships with others. Always putting the best construction on everything. Putting the best spin, however you like, whatever metaphor that you like to get that through into your thinking. It, it does that. It, it doesn't always sit around looking for ulterior motives or, or, or ill intentions. It says it puts the best construction on it. That's important. If you want to have basically sound relationships, you're going to have to be the kind of person who puts the best construction on things. He says hopes all things. That's the next one. Hopes all things. Again, this is not about gospel hope. This is not about the hope of the new heaven and the new earth. This is not the hope of eternal salvation in the eternal kingdom of God. Come with power. This is about relationships. It's about relationships. It's about not being cynical. It's about not being jaded. It's about not waiting for other people you know to jerk you over. It hopes all things. It hopes for the best of people that we're in relationships with. It hopes for the best. And why does it hope for the best? Because it trusts that God's in control. It trusts that God is in control. And if you're in a relationship with Christians, it, it trusts that God in His grace is powerful enough to sanctify His people so that in the end they won't do a destruction 
destructive damage to you and to the relationship. It's, it's trusting that. Now, I know that doesn't always work out. And I know that there's all kinds of exceptions. And as fast as I say that love hopes all things, most of us can say, yes, but you don't know my life. You don't know my situations. You don't know what's happened. Okay, I understand all that. That's very true. You can always find exceptions. But what Paul is saying is you be a Christian and you hope all things. You do that. You hope for the best in others. Trusting that God will accomplish His purpose. And then finally endure. And I promise we're wrapping up. Love endures. It's the very last thing. It endures all things. Now you'll notice that the text on love here and its attributes begins and ends on a very similar theme. It started with patient and we said, well, patience there doesn't refer to circumstances. It refers to difficult people. And this, in, this ends with endures all things. And this primarily refers to circumstances and not people. But it certainly would, indu- it would involve relationships and the difficulty that goes along with them sometimes. But that's the sense here. It's, it's quite a bit about circumstances. Love endures a difficult relational circumstances. A number of different uh, people have said a lot of good things about this. I'll just pick out one that really stood out to me. And that is William Hendrickson, he said, love perseveres with tenacity in all circumstances. It means to endure pain in times of suffering, deprivation, hatred, loss, and loneliness. Love endures when times are hard in relationships. It does. Love endures when times are hard in relationships. It doesn't cut and run. It doesn't quit on people. It doesn't throw them away because they're hard. I think the sense of what endure would have the the, the sense of endure here is probably well illustrated by our marriage vows. That we will love, comfort and keep in sickness and in health, and richer for poor, for better for worse, sadness and joy. That's it. I think that's, that's in a nutshell what, what's being gotten out here is it endures. It, it puts up sickness and health, richer, better, poor, sadness, joy. That's That's what love does. It powers through. And you say, well, how are we going to do that? And I promise we wouldn't do a lot more passages, but I have to do one more. And that's Hebrews chapter 12. Because uh, this is going to leave us, after all of these very challenging um, descriptions of love, and and of course the obligation that we have to to live it out, it, it leaves us here looking at Jesus. And that's where we have to end. Because love is all about Jesus at the end of the day. 1 Corinthians 13 is all about Jesus at the end of the day. And it's good for us to leave thinking about Jesus because uh, he exemplifies this and this is the source from which we draw to do what the Apostle Paul speaks of here. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, uh, the preacher here says, Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race set before us. There's the same word that we have over in 1 Corinthians 13:7. He says we're to run the Christian race with endurance. And that race is not run by you in isolation. It's run with you and the whole cloud of Christians with you. Okay? So it's not just you. And you're, you're running with all of these Christians. Okay? 
And he says, you are to run with endurance. Now, he tells us how it is that we are to run with endurance. And this is where we're going to end our message this morning. He says, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That's what we all have to take away this morning. You have the inspiration and you have the energy. Jesus endured. The same thing the Apostle Paul told us to do in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says this is what loving people do. The very thing that the preacher says here in in Hebrews chapter 12, they were to run the race with endurance. Now the preacher said Jesus endured. How did he do that? What says for the joy set before him. What was the joy set before him? It wasn't the death of the cross. It was us. It was His people. It was the host. It was the multitudes, the thousands, the millions, the billions, all the people that Jesus died for. The joy was us. And what did He do? He went to the cross, suffering death before us because of the joy. He endured the cross because of us despising its shame. And then verse 3, he says, consider him who endured hostility by sinners. You see that? Again, fix your eyes on him. He says, consider him. Both are very powerful mental verbs. Take all of the powers of your concentration and go look at the cross. That's what the preacher is saying. And there Jesus endured all the pain and suffering and shame and humiliation you could ever possibly imagine and more. And he did it all for the joy And He did it for you. And that is the very way that we endure all things. Because that's the application the preacher makes to us. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. How do you not grow weary and lose heart? How is it that you don't become boiling over with frustration and irritable? How is it that you can show kindness even to enemies? How is it that you can rejoice in truth? How is it that you can bear all things? How is it that you can sacrifice your rights and all of your privileges? How is it that you can believe all things and hope all things and endure all things? Well, the preacher says, here is how you do it. Fixing. Fixing your eyes on Jesus, considering Him. People of God, if we're going to be loving people, we have to be the kind of people who are non-stop running back to the cross. Non-stop. Because there we see the inspiration. There we see the model. There we see the perfect example. And there we see the energy Again, never forget what Paul said. I have been crucified with Christ. And the life I live now is not me, but Christ in me. That's how you fulfill the descriptions of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Not me. I had to be nailed to the cross. This is how I do it. Jesus, Jesus living in me. Through union with Christ, we will begin to be patient and to be kind and to be rejoicing in truth, to be bearing of all things, believing of all things, hoping of all things. 
and enduring all things. That's a big project. There's seven perfections of love. That is the way to vitality and healthiness in our relationships and to productivity and joy in our churches is that we bear these seven perfections. We begin to adorn them and live them. And we do that fixing our eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we acknowledge uh, that you've given us something that is beyond our capacity. Our hearts aren't even big enough. Our emotions are not large enough. Our capacities mentally to conceive of these things are too dull. But for whatever we've been able to grasp today, and whatever we've been able to glean as we keep going back to the cross of Jesus Christ,